0: Everybody, welcome in to the inaugural edition of the Rebuild Podcast. I am Jordan Zerm and I am thrilled to be uh, hosting this podcast underneath the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Um, shout out to my guy, Kevin Jones. I am joining a a group of podcasters that has already established itself as one of the uh, the best on the interwebs, uh, including one from my man Jake Burns and Brown's Film Breakdown. So, I'm thrilled to be able to contribute a Brown's theme podcast to this already great network and um, join a lot of uh, growing pods and doing really cool things in terms of bringing you guys content and from local markets and um, really trying to give you guys a little bit more insight into. Really, this podcast is about the overall picture of the Browns as they sort of move forward um, into 2019 and beyond as it finally feels like the Browns are on track to uh, put together a team that might actually, like, be in the playoffs or, I don't know, win a playoff game or do things like complete a pass on third down when you need a first down like they did last week to try and run out the clock. Like These are things—this is uncharted territory, and I'm just really here to guide you guys through— um, what is hopefully going to be a prosperous next couple of years for the Cleveland Browns, which is a really weird thing to say because um, this is not a situation that I think a lot of us are used to. I think in 2002, the Browns made the playoffs, and I have very vague memories of that. And then obviously 2007, they went 10 and six and missed the playoffs. And then 2014, as we all know, they started out seven and four. And then things really fell off the wagon there. So we've had like three brief blips, brief instances of the Browns um, almost doing something good. Um, In the case of 2002, they made it as a wildcard team, so they did get in the playoffs, but then that 2007-2014 years sort of ended both in a a lot of disappointment after what was really kind of fun seasons, both of those. One in 2014 sort of stopped being fun the moment Johnny Manziel started playing football, but um, this feels like the first time, and the Browns are probably not going to make the playoffs this season. They obviously need uh, a lot of help to win the AFC North, and I I am highly doubtful it's going to happen, but this is the first time that it feels like there is a team being put together that is not only improving now week to week and starting to look like an honest-to-God football team, but that has a sort of blueprint laid out in front of it as to how it can continue to get better. So this isn't a one-off. This isn't like a 2014 where um, for the first 11 games of the season, you had Brian Hoyer under center. Um, you had a good running game. And then once some things started to break down, um, like Alex Mack breaking breaking his leg and um, not being able to play center anymore, um, which sort of then hurt Brian Hoyer, which then hurt the rest of the team. And then you had some front office meddling, and in comes Johnny Manziel, and everything breaks down from there. Um, or 2007, where it just felt like a an anomaly of Derek Anderson, the quarterback who completed more deep passes than I think he'd ever completed uh, in the rest of his career. And then defenses adjust and he's not really accurate to anywhere else on the field. And Braylon Edwards starts dropping passes. It Things happen to both of those teams that um, one year later, everything sort of was flipped on its head. And this year, finally it feels like there is a step forward um, that is going to be better than what it was this year. And, I think that's happened for a couple of reasons, and we can get into those, but um, that's what this podcast is really going to be about, is sort of tracking the Browns as they go through this rebuilding process that is sort of still under construction, though the building is is up, uh, some glass panes are being put in the windows, you're walking by, you're getting excited for what it's going to be. So I think there's plenty to get excited about in there, that area, and this will sort of be a journey through that. Uh, week to week looking at different things from the coaching search to the draft to um, every week looking at uh, the type of players that are improving, the type of things the Browns are doing that is allowing their team to improve on the field as well. Um, and I'm really excited to uh, be the host of it and bring you guys through it. And we're going to have guests as well. I'm hoping to get some national and local guys on so we can talk about the state of the Browns every week and, and how they can best move forward and all of that. So that will all be coming uh, on a week to week basis. But for this first episode of the rebuild, you know what I really wanted to do is um, talk about the Browns' coaching search. Um, but before I get to that, I do just uh, further introduce myself just a little bit. Again, I'm Jordan Zerm. I um, I do some work for ESPN Cleveland here in Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm based. Uh, I also uh, write for UpRocks, um, and I've uh, contributed as a freelance writer to places like Bleacher Report, um, as well as SB Nation and and Complex and Cleveland Scene and a handful of other places. Uh, I also am one of the editorial producers on the Tomahawk Show, the uh, infamous podcast hosted by Joe Thomas and Andrew Hawkins uh, on Uninterrupted. And that's been a lot of fun. But the cool thing about the rebuild is it's mine, dog. This is all mine. I get, to, I get to control the topics and talk about what I want to talk about, and that's really, I'm here for that. I'm, I'm very much here for that, and I'm excited to do it. So that's a little bit more about me. I'm also at Twitter, shameless plug. You can follow me at cleveserm, where the only thing I tweet is fire tweets. Um, I also tweet a lot about being a Sashi Brown apologist. I also tweet um, about my large adult son, Jetty Osmond of the Cavs, um, and I used to roast Hugh Jackson a lot on Twitter, but he's not there in Cleveland anymore, so I've scaled back a little bit on that, but every once in a while it's good just to get a nice Hugh Jackson roast onto the internet, and um, I, I will occasionally continue to do that. I got a lot of Hugh Jackson GIFs loaded into the drafts folder on my computer, um, and occasionally I'll come, I'll come at Carson Wentz. I used to come at Carson Wentz a lot on Twitter, uh, probably too much, um, but, you know, the Eagles are struggling, and I, I am petty, and I will come back, and I'll probably say some mean things about Carson Wentz. So that's really the full Jordan Zerm experience on Twitter, at Cleve Zerm. Holler at your boy, give me a follow, and let's have some fun uh, with the rebuild. But again, this first episode, the Browns coaching search is sort of front and center in the news, especially right now because one of the candidates, and someone whose, uh, whose name has been thrown around a lot as somebody who could become the next head coach of the Cleveland Browns is someone who has already been here and was actually a part of the disaster that was um, 2014, and that is our guy John D. Filippo. Flip, as he's affectionately known, um, was just fired by the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, it actually happened, uh, on Tuesday after the Minnesota Vikings put up maybe one of their worst offensive performances of the year against the Seattle Seahawks on Monday night football. They scored seven points, a whopping seven points. Um, they've scored, they scored 17 points over the past two games that came against the Patriots and this week, um, against the Seattle Seahawks and 17 points is, uh, combined over two games is pretty bad. You guys like, it's not good. Um, that's not a good output. And John DiFilippo, I'm not sure whether it is a combination of um, his play calling just didn't work there, but he's also being scapegoated for some things that uh, are a little bit out of his control, such as the offensive line being a sieve and such as Kirk Cousins being butt. Kirk Cousins is butt. I think we just need to start with that right now. Get that out of the way before we continue. Kirk Cousins is, is um, apparently not really that good at quarterback. And I was watching some of that Monday Night Football game last night, and I I am loath to to agree with Jason Witten because Jason Witten is a tub of um, mayonnaise with. Jason Witten is a tub of mayonnaise with a microphone, is essentially what Jason Witten is. Um, he is maybe the blandest broadcaster that I've ever come across in my life. I think he said after an interception by Russell Wilson on the Monday Night Football broadcast, he just said, that's bad. And Everybody was like, yeah, Jason, it is, man. It's, that is bad. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't throw interceptions. But you, you got to give me more than that's bad. And before I go off on too much of a Jason Witten tangent, because it's just, it's just, I don't, you know, I'm sure he's a fine dude. He's not somebody you want to be caught at talking to, uh, caught talking to at a cocktail party because he'd just come up to you and be like, I, um, I was mowing my backyard the other day and you know what I found? Oh, you're not going to believe this. A couple of rocks just sitting in a cluster almost came right out of the, right out of the lawnmower and hit me right in the eye. Can you believe that? Boy, mowing the lawn's tough. Like, that's the conversation you're going to have with Jason Witten at a cocktail party. So you got to avoid that at all costs. And that's how he is in the broadcast booth. But it's just like, Jason, how did you even play football at a high level like you did? Because it doesn't feel like you even understand anything that's going on in the field. Like, I just wonder if he was coming back into the huddle with Tony Romo and being like, hey, man, I don't know what route I'm running. I don't know what coverage the defense is playing, but I'm just going to try to get open. So just throw me the ball. And it just worked a bunch. Like, I feel like that's what Jason Witten's career is because... He just misidentifies coverages, and he says things that are just incorrect all the time. And so anyway, it's been a long year with Jason Witten. Um, And I actually have—I've even forgotten where I started with this, but now it's coming back to me. This is how deep I got into the Jason Witten hole. But he actually said something, I thought, on a play that was really pertinent. Um, They called a play action on a—I think it was a second down and short. And Kirk Cousins—it was a bootleg out to his left— and he's rolling to his left, and Stefan Diggs is came across the formation from the other side. And Stefan Diggs is is open. It's like a three-yard pass. He's got a linebacker behind him. And if you just throw the ball to Stefan Diggs, put it out in front of him and let him run, he's gonna get 10-15 yards. And Kirk Cousins looks right at him, looks right at him, hesitates, and then goes elsewhere with the ball. And Jason Witten was like, you gotta just throw it to Stefan Diggs. Like, just throw it to him. I don't understand why why you're hesitating and why you're waiting. Um, and that was sort of the story of Kirk Cousins' whole game. And I'm not going to sit here and say I've watched every Minnesota Vikings game and I'm plugged into um, what John DiFilippo is doing on a, on a game-to-game basis. I think the narrative that you hear out of Minnesota, um, especially because head coach Mike Zimmer has been vocal about it in uh, his disagreement with it is how little the Vikings run the ball – um, and it's true I think there was a game this season where the Vikings ran the ball a total of four times like they had four carries to their running backs part of that is Dalvin Cook was hurt for part of the season Latavius Murray is an average running back but you know so there, so there's that and I think there's legitimate criticisms to John D. Filippo in abandoning the run and um, getting pass happy and there's rumors that you know he wants to show off his full playbook because he wants that head coaching job which I find strange like I don't if you're trying to get a head coaching job, I'm not sure the solution is like to line up your offensive lineman out wide uh, on multiple possessions and only run the ball four times. I'm not sure that's what teams are looking for. But so with John D. Filippo, who was somebody that has previously been a Browns offensive coordinator, the Browns were 30th uh, in the league in points per game the year that that John D. Filippo was the Browns uh, offensive coordinator. John DiFilippo Filippo was the Browns coordinator in 2015. So excuse me, I uh, I was wrong when I said that he was uh, the coordinator in 2014 when the Browns were. That was obviously Kyle Shanahan, and Kyle Shanahan uh, got a PowerPoint together and uh, and left uh, because of that whole experience. So that was that was really all um, a lot of fun. And then uh, John D. Filippo came in and uh, tried to salvage things. Uh, things did not go well. That was. Um, I believe, yes, that was the last year of the Mike Pettin-Ray Farmer era. Um, and the Browns finished uh, 3-13 in 2015. Um, so everybody was everybody was having fun. Everybody was having fun there. Everybody was having a really good time with Johnny Manziel um, and Josh McCown. Um, and so that was just a... Uh, yeah, that was not a good time for anybody involved. And not all of that is the fault of John D. Filippo. He then went to Philadelphia... Um, And had a a really incredible year um, with the Philadelphia Eagles uh, when they won the Super Bowl last season. He was with the Eagles for I believe two seasons. Yep, 2016, 2017, 2017. They won the Super Bowl. He did wonders with Carson Wentz after Carson Wentz had a pretty average rookie season. Um, And then you know they they. Got Nick Foles ready for the ready for the playoffs and ready to win a Super Bowl, uh, which is you know something that should not be taken lightly. But then he goes to Minnesota, um, getting out of Philadelphia, and you know things have gone really poorly. So it's hard to know it's hard to know exactly what the reasoning is for it. I imagine it's somewhere in between John Filippo's play calling, maybe not really fitting with the personnel that the Vikings had on offense, but also you know Kirk cousins not throwing to open wide receivers um, in an offensive line that has been injured and bad so i'm I'm not sure what to make of the John D Filippo stuff and I'm not sure where he now falls as a as a candidate for for head coach and I think people are correct when they say that you know some people uh, are not cut out to be uh, to go from the coordinator position to the head coaching position and I think that a prime example of that is someone like Hugh, ja- Hugh Jackson who guided Andy Dalton to the best season of his career as a offensive coordinator for the Cincinnati Bengals, but his multiple stints as a head coach, both in Oakland and now in Cleveland have been pretty abysmal. Um, And especially from the play calling side of things, he was not a good play caller in Cleveland. Um, And then he couldn't function when he gave up the play calling duties to Todd Haley. So I think you see a lot how guys that are coordinators um, just can't make that jump. You know, you think back to a Romeo crenell as a defensive coordinator uh, in Cleveland, and, and it couldn't happen, and now he's back as a defensive coordinator having a lot of success with the Houston Texans. So you just don't know. For every Sean McVay, there is somebody like Hugh Jackson, um, and it's hard to find um, exactly where the Venn diagram of those guys that are good as a coordinator and good as a head coach are, but I bring up John DiFilippo, who obviously now has some free time on his hands and um, may start interviewing for head coaching jobs. Uh, but the way things ended with him in Minnesota um, feels like it's going to be a tough sell, um, especially a guy that's already been here. People have a bad taste in their mouth um, with John D. Filippo and with Johnny Manziel. That doesn't bother me. Uh, I don't think he should be held accountable for a lot of that stuff. But that kind of leads me to the question that's what – who is left that excites you, you know, about the Browns uh, – for the Browns coaching search in 2019 now? Because for a while – For a while, the three names that I thought popped up a lot um, were Lincoln Riley were Matt Campbell from Iowa State, John D. Filippo, and those to me were like the top three guys whose names are really circulating, Um, especially early in the season. Uh, when there was still some intrigue about, oh, would Lincoln Riley leave Oklahoma and would he come to the Cleveland Browns? Would he take on with his visor and his, his balding head? Would he come to Cleveland and reunite with Baker Mayfield and turn the Browns into the greatest offensive show the world has ever seen? And, and you know, Matt Campbell was this guy yelling at people in the locker room and giving these rah-rah speeches about grit and toughness and blue-collar and lunch pails and Iowa State and cyclones. And I don't know I'm doing a Southern accent um, – Iowa State, Iowa's not a Southern State, but, um, you know, there was some excitement about that. He just got a contract extension, which doesn't mean that, you know, he's not, he's going to absolutely stay at Iowa State, but he got the contract extension, you know, Lincoln Riley has sort of been, has rebuffed, The questions about the Browns job, you know, I don't know what people, I don't know what he's going to say in any of those situations. I think the first time he didn't slam the door shut. I do think Lincoln Riley has NFL aspirations. I think there's only so long. You can stay at a place in college. I feel like Nick Saban is really the um, the exception to the rule in that he's just running such a dominating program that um, it and winning and winning every national championship that it doesn't even make sense for him his age to go anywhere anymore. Like, why would you leave that? I think with Lincoln Riley, with such a um, high powered and forward thinking offense, but a trash defense and playing in the big 12 and yes you're getting the college football playoff but i think a lot of us think they're going to get smoked by alabama i don't know i think that makes it easier for him to daydream about what it would be like at the nfl level um would his offense work there uh he could have an actual defense he could have a defensive coordinator deal with that he could focus all his energy on the offense sort of like what sean mcveigh has done um in los angeles and so i don't think he's shut the door on it but I don't know. It's it, it doesn't feel like at the moment there's a ton of buzz and a ton of realism in terms of Lincoln Riley um, leaving Norman uh, and coming to the NFL. So if you knock those guys off the list and now you sort of knock John Filippo off the list because it just <laughs> this was such a bad season for the Vikings offense that it, it feels like it would be a tough sell to bring John Filippo on as a head coach anywhere right now um then you're sort of going down the list of a lot of unknowns um you know another name that that keeps coming up and keeps coming up there's a couple guys um out of out of Kansas City that are getting a lot of pub and one of them you know Dave Tobe who is the special teams special teams coordinator and associate head coach in Kansas City that you know I if I'm being honest I don't know uh much about at all I I feel like it's it's an odd transition to go from a special teams coordinator to a head coach in the NFL, and Dave Tobe's done that for a while, but he seems very highly thought of in Kansas City. He obviously has John Dorsey connections. And then you've got Eric Bien-Aimé, Um the offensive coordinator, I you know, associate offensive coordinator with the Kansas City Chiefs as, as Andy Reid is still, um, you know, is the main guy calling plays there. Eric Biennemi is the guy that you see um, next to Andy Reid Um on the sidelines all game kind of following his every move. Um, they both have a play sheet. So um you know again with someone like Eric Bienemy, I there's not a ton that you you know about in terms of um his play calling, how much influence he has over the offense, uh, what's he, you know, what his role is there underneath Andy Reid and if Andy Reid is really the um the mastermind there, which I think he is. Eric Bienemy um, spent a lot of time in college as a coach, uh, coached running backs a lot of his career. He was a running back in college, coached at Colorado, um, coached at UCLA, uh, running backs there. He, w- he went back to Colorado in 2011, 2012. Um, he coached running backs for the Minnesota Vikings, and he's been the Kansas City Chiefs running back coach from 2013 until 2017, where he then became the uh, offensive coordinator at the at the 2000 the start of the 2018 season so uh you know you just never know about how much um responsibility bnm has obviously he helps out with the offense a lot but it's still kind of andy reed's designed offense which isn't necessarily a bad thing if he's bringing that type of innovation to the browns with picker mayfield then that's great but you it's just such a jump from a guy who's not even the the official offensive coordinator for a team to to come and become a head coach. So, so then you have Eric Biennemi um, as a candidate. And then you've got Greg Williams, I, I guess, as a candidate. And I've talked about this on ESPN Cleveland and other places that I just – Greg Williams just doesn't really do all that much for me. Um, I think that Greg Williams has been around long enough now that you sort of know what he is. And I think that the Browns defensively, there's still things Greg Williams does in terms of play calling on the defensive side of the ball that I can't stand. And I also wonder with Greg Williams, the difference between getting Greg Williams as a sort of substitute teacher, as he is right now, taking over as the interim head coach of the Browns, and Greg Williams as your full-time professor, meaning you're coming in Next season through OTAs, rookie minicamp, training camp, and then into the season, and and you've got this this maniac. I mean, Greg Williams is a maniac. I don't even think like if I said that to his face, he'd be like, yeah, right. I am. I'm a maniac. I'm 100 percent a maniac. So I don't even think it's that much of a stretch to call him a maniac. He scaled himself back a little bit. He doesn't um, scream obscenities uh, as much as he did you know, when he was just a defensive coordinator. But, like, that's just ingrained in his character. Like, that's who he is. And so I wonder how stale he would get if you just had to be there for an entire season of, of Greg Williams at this point in his career. And I also think, I, I tweeted this yesterday, I, I give so much more credit to this Browns turnaround. And this is something we'll talk about moving forward too. But um, to Freddie Kitchens, the offensive coordinator. Because I think he's completely unlocked the Browns offense and turned it into what it should have been all year, and something that I don't understand why it was so hard for for Todd Haley to um, call similar things and design the offense a similar way as Freddie Kitchens has uh, for Baker Mayfield, for Duke Johnson, um, for for Jarvis Landry for getting Jarvis Landry involved both in the passing game and in the running game twice on Sunday, once for a touchdown, once for another huge gain, like. Freddie Kitchens has just done things that uh, have been incredibly impressive, but also it feels like like just simplifying things and making things easier. And I give a lot of credit um, for the Browns' turnaround because of their offense, because their offense really struggled um, early on in the season, really, really struggled, um, and against bad defenses too. I know a lot of people are talking about, um, you know, the the Browns playing. Oh, they played the Bengals and they played the Panthers and they played the Falcons and and those. Those teams don't have uh, super great defenses. And so, yeah, of course, like Baker Mayfield is, is going to look better and the team's going to do way better. But the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were dead last in the NFL when the Browns played them. And the Browns had two points for almost all of the first half because all they got was a defensive safety. They ended up losing 26-23, played a little better, bit better in that second half. But, like, their offense um, struggled, and they had to go to overtime to score 23 points. Um, You know, you look at some of the totals early on, 12 points against the Ravens, 14 points against the Chargers, only 18 points against the Steelers. So, you know, they just, their offense was not lighting people up. And now, granted, Chargers-Steelers have a little bit better of a defense. But um, I just think that what Freddie Kitchens has done for this Browns team has made so much more of a difference than what Greg Williams has done as a head coach. And I give Greg Williams credit for sort of Being a stabilizing force and getting guys to play for him and um, making the transition from firing two major figureheads of your organization in the middle of the season about as seamless as possible. But if we're talking about Baker Mayfield and we're talking about Nick Chubb and we're talking about Duke Johnson, I think that Freddie Kitchens has done an absolutely immaculate job um, sort of turning this team into, into what it is. So I... I've gone from being really, really excited about the the type of candidates that are going to be available uh, for the Browns to sort of just being unsure a little bit, because they don't want Greg Williams, and I don't know enough about some of these lesser candidates like Eric Bieniemy. I know that um, Chris Peterson from the Washington Huskies name has now been mentioned in uh, attachment to the Browns, and I think that's credit to John Dorsey doing a huge search and casting a really wide net, but... Um, you know, it's hard to know, again, Chris Peterson, a guy that's been around for a while, a guy that was really successful at Boise State, um, goes to Washington, has a lot of success there. They made the college football playoff last year. Uh, they won the uh, the Pac-12 this year. But again, you just, you don't know in terms of uh, translation to the NFL how that would work. Um, because if Lincoln Riley says no and Matt Campbell says no and John Filippo is off the board, it sort of whittles down the candidates and, and really whittles down the options that the Browns sort of have. Now, I'm sure John Dorsey is going to unearth some names that we're not thinking of yet. Um, and there's obviously there's a lot of guys and a lot of coordinators in the NFL that, that might be available. But I think like some people have said it best on Twitter that uh, what Sean McVeigh has done is almost made it is made it harder now because and is going to make it easier for teams to make mistakes because they're going to look at a young, hot coordinator and think that they have to find their Sean McVay, and they're going to end up reaching for somebody who's not ready. And even like John Filippo now feels like that guy. Like maybe that's a reach for somebody who's not ready to be a head coach, and is really their ceiling is being a coordinator, and that's what they excel at, and that's what they need to that's what they need to be, and that's where they need to stay. And so that worries me about where the Browns are because I. If they're reaching for somebody and they're not, they're not grabbing a candidate that at least I personally feel like is deserving of a look and would be an exciting choice for head coach. Um, then where do you go? And do you and do you have to stay with a Greg? Like if the Browns went out and somehow won the AFC North and went to the playoffs, does that mean? you give Greg Williams a harder look, and does that mean you go into next year with Greg Williams and Freddie Kitchens? And does that excite you? And, and I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know. I really like Freddie Kitchens, but I don't think Greg Williams is that guy. I don't think he's that dude, as the kids say. So I think that's really difficult. Um, it's going to be a difficult thing. It's going to be a difficult path forward, um, and it's going to be really fascinating to see which candidates um, throw their name in the ring for these jobs and which ones we're going to feel like are going to be truly available as we go through these last three games and into the coaching search. So that will be something we will definitely focus on as this podcast moves along. But but right now, with John DiFilippo being fired and maybe being off a lot of teams' boards, it just had me thinking about other candidates and who's going to be ready to take this job. Um, And it's sort of, it's a little fuzzy right now, and that's a little nerve-wracking because this is, outside of that first draft that John Dorsey had, which by all accounts looks like he absolutely nailed uh, in terms of Denzel Ward, in terms of of Baker Mayfield, in terms of Nick Chubb, um, the coach is next, and um, getting this coach right is, you know, the first foot forward was the draft, the second foot forward is the coach, and then you can start walking. And then maybe you start a nice little light jog next year that turns into a run. And then you're full on sprinting. Uh, if you guys want me to continue on with this very poor analogy that I'm making about uh, somebody walking, then sprinting, um, I can keep going. Uh, but it's really bad, so I'll stop. Um, before we end this episode, something I want to do at the end is just do some quick hits, some stuff that's going on in, in Brownsland, uh, around Brownsland. Um, you know, I just <laughs> – Larry Ogan Joby is playing through a torn bicep. And I saw something that said um, he might not even have surgery on it because they may have to, in order to perform this surgery, they may have to break a bone in his arm, um, and then he just wouldn't be able to, like, functionally use his arm the same ever again. So your options are just, like, playing with a torn bicep, which, like, out of all the injuries, football-related, life-related, like, torn bicep just sounds like just the most agonizing pain in the world. Um, But then your other option is like, hey, man, you got to come in here and we got to just – we're going to just stomp on your arm uh, because we got to break this bone. And then actually your arm's just going to hang upside down for the rest of your life. But, you know, it won't feel so bad anymore. You just can't play football. I mean, if those are the options you're left with, then Larry Ogunjobi is like, whatever, man, I'll just play with a torn bicep. So shout out to Larry Ogunjobi for – having those choices be presented to him and picking the, the least bad of the two, I guess, which is playing through a torn bicep, um, which is pretty wild. Um, another quick hit I wanted to hit on is that, uh, you know, this weekend as the Browns go into Mile High Stadium to take on the Denver Broncos, it's the interesting narrative of, of the Denzel Ward versus Bradley Chubb pick um, that we that was probably the biggest debate at number four in the draft was whether the Browns were going to end up taking um, Bradley Chubb and slotting him in a line that already featured Miles Garrett, um, Larry Ogunjobi, and Emmanuel Agba. Um, But, you know, early on, I I think most Browns fans are fine now with the Denzel Ward pick. Um, I think there's going to be some durability questions as he goes on because... um, Denzel Ward sort of looks like an individual french fry uh, just out there. Like, he's just so thin and just kind of blowing in the wind that you are absolutely going to worry about his durability. He's already been dealing with a couple of injuries. We don't even know if he's going to play on Saturday because of some concussion stuff he's dealing with. But I think overall we're pretty happy with Denzel um, and how he's played and the type of corner that he already is and is going to develop into. And I think he's going to be pretty elite. He, He just has... Instinctive skills, both ball skills and just his vision of the field, that I think are, um, you see already and are really hard to teach somebody. And I think that's really, really exciting. But um, Bradley Chubb, you know, early on, I think struggled a little bit. And we always like to point those things out when you take somebody in the draft instead of another player. But he had two sacks against the 49ers last week. Um, and he has 12 now on the season. Um, and that set the. Broncos rookie sack record. Uh, so Bradley Chubb is is obviously doing some really big things for the Broncos. He obviously fits really well there. Um, yeah, he has twelve. So that was more than Von Miller had as a rookie. So that's a big deal for for Bradley Chubb. Um, but obviously, offensively, the the Broncos have struggled, and they're they're in the playoff hunt. But it's been a you know, it's not been a great season for them. They lost. Uh, they lost to the 49ers, and um, they lost to the 49ers. And so he, he's absolutely made an impact. The rookie record uh, is for the whole league is Javon Curse, who had 14.5 in 1999. And Chubb's going to be right there uh, trying to tie that, and hopefully it doesn't happen against the Browns. But, you know, I think both teams are probably satisfied with their individual picks. Um and I think Bradley Chubb is a really nice piece for, for the Broncos. And I think Denzel Ward has addressed a huge need for the Browns, maybe even a bigger need than that defensive line. So um, I think both teams can kind of say that they're happy there. And finally, the last thing I want to hit on was, um, was Baker Mayfield, who decided that he was, uh, he was upset with the lack of fans that were, that were around uh, and inside of uh, First Energy Stadium against the Carolina Panthers. Um, On Sunday for the home game, it was actually the smallest Browns crowd uh, of the year, and I'm bringing up a piece here because I thought this was uh, a really good piece from uh, Kevin Kleps, who writes for Cleveland uh, Cranes Business Magazine. You can follow him at Kevin Kleps on Twitter. He does some really good stuff, some really good kind of Browns, or excuse me, Cleveland sports business stuff. you know, Baker said, uh, we would love to have more fan support. Today was cold. I get it. But having more people, especially at our last home game coming up, we would love to have more people in the stands cheering for us because we feed off of that energy. Um, the crowd, the announced crowd was 59,392 on Sunday. That was the lowest of this season. Um, the capacity at First Energy Stadium is 67,431. Um, so it was by far the lowest, the lowest crowd that was there. And it was bitterly cold in Cleveland that day. Um, it was their lowest crowd since the 2017 home finale. And if you remember, the Browns didn't win a single game last year. So uh, that's pretty understandable. Um, but, you know, the thing is, the Browns, after last year, um, the 2017 season, their attendance was the wor- The Browns attendance was its wor- the worst it's been in 33 years, which is um, pretty absurd. Um, they, they drew an average crowd of 62,403. This is all per Kevin Kleps. Um, it was the lowest in the history of First Energy Stadium, and obviously the worst for the Browns since 1984. Obviously, they went 0-16. They had multiple games um, that were in the low 50,000s. They played Baltimore 50 to, to a crowd of 56,434. Uh, so that was really, really bad. Um, but the Browns' average attendance this season, this is why I wanted to bring this up. And, I, you know, ba- Baker's fair in that criticism because it, he was correct. It was the lowest attendance of the season. But I think also, to be fair, uh, in context, the Browns have just dropped a game to the Houston Texans uh, sitting at 4-7-1. and one. There's not really a lot of playoff hopes uh, to hang on to. It's getting colder. So I think all of those things probably combined for that. Um, but their average attendance this season is 65,527, which is 3,124. Uh, people ahead of 2017, um, and it's higher than 2016 as well. Um, when they finished one and fifteen, but um, obviously that was sort of the um, the first year of Hugh Jackson. So there's always like a little bit of excitement about a new head coach coming in and a new team and all of that. So um, the Browns' average attendance is higher than it's been in the in the past two years. So. Uh, they're also playing at a 97.2% capacity. Um, so they fill the stadium up 97% on average. And that's uh, near the middle of the pack. It's uh, number 17 uh, overall in the NFL. So again, uh, the numbers are really not as bad as it seemed. Yes, it was the lowest crowd of the year, but uh, per Kevin Kleps on a really good article at cranescleveland.com, Um it's really not that bad. And their, their average attendance has shot up this season as it should have uh, because they've got a better team and they've been more exciting. And uh, I think next year... I think you're going to see a huge increase in attendance because if there's one thing that Browns fans are um, to a fault, they are loyal, they are insane, and they love them some Browns football. And when the team is, I don't know, maybe good and in the playoff hunt in December, um, I don't think the weather's going to affect anything. I don't think the opponent's going to affect anything. I think you're going to see a rowdy First Energy Stadium um, all year long for the first time in a very long time. And I think that's really exciting. And the rebuild. This podcast will be right there with you as we go through that journey together and we, um, we see where the Browns can go from here. So I hope you guys enjoyed this first episode. We will be back every week um, with a half-hour episode talking about the state of the Browns and everything that's going on with them with an eye towards the future. Talk coaching search. Today, we will have guests we will have me and my witty banter, so get hype for that. Once again, um, you can follow me on Twitter at CleveZerm, and you can follow Blue Wire, and you should do all of those things. You should check out Blue Wire Podcasts um, for a bunch of other really great podcasts around the Browns, but also they have uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. They've got the Warriors, if that's what you're into. Um, Packers Redskins they've just got uh, a ton of content on there about all different teams and every uh, every team you could you could want to follow there will be some sort of content on there for you so once again thank you for listening to the rebuild we will be back next week once again I'm your host Jordan Zern, and I will talk to you later